Hello, I'm Alex and this is the Northern Guides to Happiness. Welcome to episode 41 in this current series of the podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listened so far and welcome if you're just joining us. We're back after an Easter break and hope to bring you a few more episodes on a bi-weekly basis. We've got some great episodes coming up. As always, I'm here in our virtual studio with Chris and Kath. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Had a, yeah, had a frantic day. A frantic so day. I, so I've come come here for a rest. <laughs> a rest, you reckon? <laughs> I never ever thought I'd hear myself say that, that, that this is restful. But yes, this is an oasis of calm compared to the rest of the day. <laughs> My goodness. So Kath's had a frantic day. What about you, Chris? I've I've also had a frantic day. I've been off over Easter for a week, which felt really, really good. But then you kind of feel come back feeling like you've been Catch punished up. for having the time off. <laughs> Look at all these emails that we sent you. It takes you a good week to catch up, don't you, on all, all the emails and stuff and figuring out where you were at when you when you went off. Yeah. Plus you have to do all the things that you said, it's all right, I'll do it after I'm back from the holiday. Yeah, yeah. So where have you been, Chris? Oh, we just went up to North Northumberland um, to see my mother-in-law. Um, for a couple of days which is very nice beautiful mm-hmm. weather up there and you know that part of the world is just spot on and the it's good, pretty so. good isn't it yeah 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 yeah, yeah it is. but don't it's tell good. anybody no 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 don't don't okay it's terrible up there everybody don't go <laughs> what about you alex what have you been up to well i was down in london yeah i was down in london so uh Ooh, went to see you. the lion king went for a, a trip down to london with the with my daughters and yeah Went to a theme park, went up to London, went to uh, see The Lion King. It was fabulous. Nice. So So what did they think of The Lion King? Oh, yeah, they loved it. It was a late night for the eight-year-old, but uh, Mm -hmm. well worth it, yeah. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but the the puppetry and the stage work was just incredible. Absolutely amazing. The the butler did it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. right, (laughs) Isn't it amazing how puppeteering is? has become high art. Oh, you know. Yeah, you're right. Because they, um, uh, oh, I can't remember which award show it was recently, but the, um, what's the, the stage awards that happen in the UK? Olivier's? Oh, who knows? Who knows? This is how much I pay attention to the world around me. Um, but they, they had all these clips of the, um, the Life of Pi stage show where they've got the tiger on stage, wow. which is, you know, a puppet. And it's just beautiful. Really, really beautiful. We went to see War Horse as well up in Edinburgh when that was on. I just remember thinking, this is astonishing, because when the horse was just standing there, you think, oh, it's just a standing horse, but no, it's always moving, always doing something, always, and you kind of see it breathing and just kind of doing the little twigs. It, it's so mm-hmm. skillful. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. Magic. Of, of, of puppeting magic, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, shall we introduce this week's guest interview? I talked to Cy Beckwith recently, who is a stand-up comic and is involved in Felt Nout, which is a community interest company run by comedians for comedy fans. He tells us a bit more about what's involved in the interview. He's also involved in a new Northeast-based podcast in collaboration with Tynanware Archives and Museums, which looks at exploring the heritage of Northeast comedy and some of the forgotten faces and untold stories of Northeast comedians. Lots to talk about, so enough of me talking. Here's Sai. Welcome to the Northern Guide to Happiness. How are you today? 
I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, you know, has anything uh, nice happened to you recently? Anything happy? I had a really nice gig last night at the stand, so I was closing Red Raw, which is a new act, new material night. So it's arguably one of their busiest nights. It's always sold out because it's cheap. It's like a fiver. Um, it's one that's always packed with students. There's always a really vibrant energy in the room. And then going on last, you get to do like an extended set, so you do 20 minutes. And last night was just really, really nice. Um, and as a nice thing off the back of that, I've just posted as a 37-year-old man my first ever reel on Instagram. And I tell oh, you what, goodness. the likes are flying in. I don't know if I've done it right. Right, but God, what a feeling. It's no one of the kids like it. Yeah, let's hope so. I feel too old for TikTok. I've, I've experimented with a few kind of Instagram reels at work, but uh, yeah, I, I don't feel I belong in TikTok land, that's for sure. No, I'll draw the line at TikTok. Instagram reels, because I watched some and I thought, you know what, I like these. I get what it's about. TikTok feels that step too far. I feel like if I was a man on there, I'd feel like I'm doing something wrong just by being on it. <laughs> Would you mind just introducing uh, yourself to the listeners? You've kind of touched a little bit there on, on what you what you do, but can you just sort of uh, just say a few words about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm Ty Beckwith. I'm a stand-up comedian, uh, predominantly, but I've also freelanced across a number of other roles. Uh, so I work doing freelance sort of audience development, audience engagement, marketing, PR for a variety of art organisations and artists. Um, I've done that alongside stand-up for a long time. I'm also a writer. I've been a web editor for magazines and written online for numerous publications. Um, I um, Yeah, I think I've had a lot of jobs down the years. My friend once said <laughs> that he thought I was personally responsible responsible for the unemployment rate in the northeast on my own because I've just I've done a lot I've programmed a number of venues stand-up comedy's been the one constant that's ran through that for a number of years but um I've got a wedding and a family to pay for so I work where I can when I can it pays the bills and I think that's part of the cultural sector as well isn't it that you know you're, you're always kind you're not always doing the same thing all the time it's just different and that's what's exciting about it as well yeah. I think you know working in the cultural sector myself it's it's what makes it enjoyable and and gets you out of bed in the morning isn't it that that variety and, and not knowing what you're going to be doing in six months time I think that's terrifying but quite exciting at the same time it keeps you really exciting. I didn't realise I had a work ethic till I was about 27, 28. And that's because I was working in jobs that I hated. I hated working in call centres. I remember one manager in a call centre once said to us, if I put half as much effort as what I put into Skyven into the job instead, I could have his job within a month. And I had to say, but Nick, I don't want your job, mate. You look miserable every day. And it wasn't until I started doing jobs that I like. And somebody asked us about comedy the other day. They were saying, like, are oh, you a professional comedian and it's such a misnomer of a term that I think is adapted and changed as the times have changed like I could easily quit those other jobs and I could live off my income as a comedian and call myself a professional comedian but I don't think I'd be anywhere near as fulfilled I need my fingers in those pies and I was talking to someone yesterday about art sort of marketing and PR like I know everyone through the jobs I've done that I offer I go in a lot of art council bids as supporting kind work around marketing and PR and I do that for people I'm passionate about because it's stronger northeast cultural scenes in my interests so even selfishly me giving up a couple of days to help someone contact press or get some radio interviews it's huge for me because the stronger it is the more art and culture gets talked about the stronger the scene is up here so I like having my fingers in those pies because I could just rely on comedy and go back to that but I don't think I'd ever be as happy like what keeps me happy is keep, what keeps me working like like you i was talking to somebody yesterday and just sort of talk and they're relatively new to the area and they were just kind of blown away by 
the different opportunities and activities and resources and, and just things to do that there are here in Newcastle. I think they were quite um, amazed coming from elsewhere in the country about all the different stuff that we've got going on. I think we are very lucky here in the northeast, aren't we, in terms of what, what the offer is. There's so much, there's so many amazing venues, amazing creatives, there's such a diversity of culture and I think one of the things that we're starting to grow is a diversity of voices, so more representation we are because of the nature and the makeup of the North East, like it's a predominantly white culture that is starting to evolve more and you're seeing those yeah. elevate, elevation yeah. of people of colour and more LGBTQ plus voices constantly being platformed and it's really good to see that elevation within the cultural sector and people really passing the mic and I think that's one thing so my industry comedy probably more than any other creative industry in the northeast suffers most from that because of the nature of comedy across the country it's so white and so male and what we're trying to do is consistently where we can pass the mic so how's that happening then in comedy so with comedy, so one of my other many jobs that I have is I'm a director of Felt Now, so I do that on a voluntary basis. Felt Now is a co-op of every Northeast comedian. So there's just under 60 comics who are co-op members. I'm one of the boards, so there's a board of seven of us, and we drive forward the sort of strategy and the day-to-day -day running of it, all done on a voluntary basis. And the only money we sort of make is what we'd make as comedians, what we make for gigs. One of the big things that we're trying to do is run a lot of community outreach, a lot of workshops, trying to find voices that wouldn't normally approach comedy by running workshops for them and say there's no pressure this might just be about confidence building or something fun for you to do if you end up doing comedy at the end of it great there's things like women in comedy there's a really good point my friend sammy made about how often women comedians don't gig together because there's only one of them on the bill we managed to put 16 women comics on the same bill at the time theater pretty much just shy of a few seats sell the time theater out raise over seven and a half grand for rape crisis and really spotlight and elevate the women that do comedy within the northeast because unfortunately we still live in a world where constantly i know the yeah, phrases like don't normally find women funny but dot 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 yeah. you are funny for a lass <laughs> and it's heartbreaking but that's starting to change but i still think with comedy I don't always know how comedy, because I'm a straight white man, my experiences are different. I don't know how comedy and how safe comedy clubs feel for LGBTQ plus people or people of colour and their experiences, like who do they look up to? So what we'd like to see is more people constantly developing through comedy, that more people have someone to look up to to go, well, that that's for me. Like as a working class person, I didn't feel welcome in theatres till I was well into my 20s. I didn't feel comfortable. I felt like if I'd say the wrong thing, I'd laugh at the wrong part. Or I felt like, what if I get it wrong? And I'm quite, I can be quite an anxious person anyway, and that was just too much for me. Whereas now, theatres are so welcoming, the ones I work with are incredibly welcoming, and that's what comedy can do as well. It's something to constantly learn from. How do you make a safe space? How do you make something that's really welcoming and comfortable for people of any background? And it's hot. what you've got to do is ask the people from those backgrounds, not just assume you know the answer. Absolutely. I used to work in, in museum outreach at, at, at Tynawit Archives and Museums, and we'll, we'll touch a little bit on, on the work that you're doing with them a little later on. But yeah, like, like theatres, I think, museums had that feel for a lot of people that they weren't places for them, that they were too highbrow and, and people didn't belong there. And, and our, our kind of role within the outreach team was to you know, try and make those spaces, as you say, safe spaces for people to come to and, and feel that they had something to contribute which everyone everyone does everyone's got a story to tell and everyone's story should be represented in in the historical archive in some way so uh yeah it's it's, it's interesting so, so what changed then for you as far as theatres and 
and feeling like you belonged in, in those sorts of places? Did, was there a turning point? Stand-up comedy. I was 27, right. I started doing stand-up, and stand-up made me welcome. I was working in a call centre, I was miserable. I started doing stand-up, so I'd had a background of sort of playing in bands and stuff like that, and never had anything sort of massive, but always knew I wanted to write. I always knew from sort of 14, and watching Kevin Smith films, I always knew I wanted to write. That was the thing that got me into it. That's my hero. That's why I wanted to do what I do. Um, and I wanted to write, and then I started doing stand-up, and stand-up, then I'd get booked on theatre bills, so places like Alphabet Theatre, where I do freelance work now. Like, those places, I started getting on bills with theatre stuff or short pieces or scratch pieces and I started speaking to theatre people and I was on their level I was a creative the same way they were and I felt welcome and I started going to shows just to support me mates I started hanging out with poets all the time and hanging out with people that to me would have felt like I am a working class lad from heaven I'm not me mates on poets me mates are people who like football and going down a pub and it just it was that cultural shift that I've got loads in common with these people there's loads of great but there's a great poet locally called Rowan McCabe who's from heaven Heaven. It's, there's these people who come from similar backgrounds and have ended up working in creative fields and the, what I started doing then is like I say just going to support me mates going to support me friends who were doing creative stuff and what comes with I think it's age more than anything you feel far more comfortable asking questions and one of the great things now is when I'm around theatre people they might drop a name or a term and I'm gonna put my hand up and go I don't know what that means I've worked in theatre for years and I don't know what that means you have to tell me what that means because if I don't know what it means someone else won't they might not be yeah yeah yeah, they might not be as gobby as me to ask and just go you need to tell us what that means because it's that it's those sort of things and every industry has it and I don't think it's exclusive to art but there's clear little terms because you, it's just habitual the, t- the time we are archives and museums is one of the best ones because I remember what it felt like when I was programming loads of events at Newcastle Castle and people kept saying twam and had to be I don't know what twam is but I've because of the project we've been working on I've been doing the same lately and uh, my friend uh, Kelly Edgar was a really good comic but she's come in as a new actor felt now so she's moved back up from London and the other day she went I only just found out what twam means and I went well that's on me I should have clarified that but we've been bouncing that term around because you just do it's just habit it's muscle memory you say the same thing and then you're like yeah everything stands for something sometimes you've got to remember and slow yourself down next thing but the biggest thing is making people feel comfortable to ask I think that's one of the biggest barriers theatre has is theatre particularly doesn't make people feel comfortable to ask because you you or get the impression that if you get it wrong, you are stupid or you're not as smart. And I think that's often, it's a big social class thing for me. It felt like a big social class thing. If I get this wrong, I, I, I feel like I'm less than them or they think I'm less than them. Whereas when, when theatre is really good, it can make it really welcome. And there was something that Customs House did, which was like a sort of FAQs before you went into a show. And someone was telling about this, uh, where, where what it would be is like little things like, and I remember bringing this up recently, people don't always know when to laugh or if you're allowed to laugh in a theatre show, if there's jokes. And it was one of the things, and this is somebody told me what it said, and it's, it's really stuck in my head, that on the sheet of paper it said, if you laugh, don't worry, the actors will wait until that dies down before they go in. Don't feel like you are disrupting the show by laughing. And it was going through everything, like how to take your seat. The amount of times I've seen in a theatre show, you can feel almost tangible panic when it's an interval because intervals aren't always explained and how they work. I've seen people leave in an interval because they thought it was the end of the show and they were too embarrassed to ask. I'll put my hand up. I've done that. I've, in an interval stood out going I don't know if oh, the, it's it. the end of the show uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and I'll be honest I wish I'd just left at that interval because the show that I'm thinking of do you know sometimes <laughs> it's just you're like 
like, yeah, I've, I've shouldn't have stuck this out. But that's what it is. It's sometimes when it shows unclear. And it's also the biggest thing for me with theatre and cultural shows is being allowed to feel like I didn't get that. Because that's the thing that took me longest to get is to be able to have an opinion, to go, I didn't like that. Because that's the hardest thing is because you feel like maybe I just didn't get it or maybe it has some intrinsic worth that I'm not getting. Sometimes, and this is what I love about all the arts, sometimes it's just rubbish and that's fine. I love that FAQ idea. That's a great idea. I love it. What a, what a great way. It's to lovely, make, isn't it? Say, make make the, the, the space more inclusive and yeah, answer those questions that somebody might be too afraid to, to ask. That's great. Love it. So you, you mentioned like the age of 27 for you was like the turning point in terms of discovering comedy. How did you get into it? Was there just that? Did you just wake up one morning and go, I'm not, I don't want to go back to the call centre. What, what, what happened? What, what made you go into comedy? I always knew I was going to do it. I think for about 18 months, two years, I knew I was going to do stand-up. Um, so again, I'd been playing in bands and stuff and not to any successful level. And I was approaching 27, which is the age most rock stars died. So I was like, well, I'm just going to have to live say, through this 27. now. 27, yeah, that's the age, isn't it? Oh, dear. I was like, well, I've, yeah, I've not died in a pit of my own vomit. I may as well put some effort in now. <laughs> So I thought I'd find what I want to do, but I knew, and again, it was through watching Kevin Smith films when I was younger. Uh, he had such a way with words and was really funny, and I remember wanting to write scripts and wanting to write funny things, and I'd always written, and I'd always gravitated towards the funny, and I'd always watched stand-up. It was me and my sister, who's two and a half, three years younger than us. Um, so we've always been really close, and we used to watch loads of... They used to only be, say, one stand-up show a week, and it might be the one that was after Match of the Day on BBC One, or Comedy Central would have sort of Comedy Central at the Comedy Store. We watched and engrossed ourselves with so much stand-up and I remember watching loads of stuff like Bill Hicks and then I went to see Josie Long a couple of times and I had a wide variety of interests and I remember coming home from a, a night out and telling me mate almost like it was something secret that like I knew I was going to do stand-up and I think this was about nine months before I do it but go like just saying I, I really I really think I'm gonna try that thing me and him had always bonded over writing as well and we talked about that a lot but he'd not done anything with it and it's somebody that I'm not close to now at all but has still not done anything with his creativity and I look back at that as really quintessential moment where I just went I'm gonna do something and I made sure I did and I've seen it through whereas a lot of people that I was around at that time were a lot of bluster and talk and I think it was something where I booked myself into a gig which is the advice I always give new acts when they're like how do I write my first set and I'm like book your first gig it's you've got it the wrong way around book your first gig if you've got a gig in a diary you will write quicker than you will you can sit and write a set and it'll take you years and years and years because you'll keep rewriting and redrafting if you book a gig in and just go and do it because it doesn't matter in your first year you're not going to be amazing just take a risk like your first gig if it goes really well excellent and then you'll your second or third one there's going to be a struggle coming at some point so just go and learn just do um and it took me years to get really to a level where i was happy with it but it's great because you can just try and fail and you can figure things out and you can work it out and you become the act you want to be there's no same journey all you get is in comedy the more professional comedians you meet the only advice you'll ever get is how to be more like them and I think that's why you take everything with a pinch of salt and you just follow your own journey mine's been different to anyone else's and the same as most of my mates everyone's followed a different path and we've all ended up at a point where we'll make like a nice living from comedy and we get the gig all the time. But however we get there, but I knew it was something I wanted to do. And I was massively shy until I was about 18 years of age. Like the thought of the person I was at school, I barely spoke in school. 
and it was something that just come with time. I got a bit more confident year on year on year, and then I was like, right, I'm going to do this, and I was uncom. It took me a while to get any sort of stage presence and feel really comfortable. And I always thought I'd be more of a writer than a performer. I was always thought I'd write really intelligent material, and that would carry us through. And I do loads of compare, and now I'm an MC. That was a thing I didn't expect to be good at. I love crowd work. I love being able to just be off the cuff. Like I like that my personality can be enough sometimes to just have a good night. And that's not the comic I expected to be at all. And it's another thing I'd always say in your acts is like the best comic you are might not be the best comic you want to be. It's something Gary Delaney once said uh, in a really good article where he talks about not wanting to be a one-liner comic. It's just he writes really good one-liners. Mm. So you just follow your path. It's like an, it's an art form and you can make it as arty as you want, but it's also a living. It's a career. It's it's an audience that matters. It's how will they find you the funniest you are? And that was the journey. So once I started doing it, it was just then the journey of just gigging. And how does it feel being a comedian? Then you were saying there that that age eighteen you were really shy. There's you know if if you knew what you'd be doing now you you wouldn't believe it sort of thing. But the thought of me getting up on stage and and trying to be funny just fills me with absolute dread. But how how does it feel performing? What what's can you describe it? So yeah, I think it's the pre-performing that's really important. So for the first four years, I suffered horrendously with nerves. I suffer with anxiety anyway. And I think that was at a point where my anxiety was at a peak. So I found comedy quite hard. And there's loads of times where you'll have a bad gig and you'll absolutely hate yourself for it. But the key to being a comedian is it's if you're bad gig and it goes badly, do you want to get back up? And that's when you know whether comedy's for you or not. Because if you have a bad gig and you're like, I want to fix this. I know what I've done wrong. I want to go and fix it. And that's the experience. So I'd always get sort of nerves. And I remember particularly my second ever gig, I had the fight or flight response really badly and I wanted to run away. I remember thinking I can just run. And I went on stage and I can still remember what that felt like. You've got the surge of adrenaline and everything just calms. Some comedians, so I think I'm renowned for never, ever overrunning on no matter how hard the bill or I'm always in control of timekeeping if I'm comparing I make sure I start the show starts and ends on time I think part of that comes back to the working class stuff like it's somebody else's time that you're taking it's somebody else's yeah. evening out like you're making them have to pay for a taxi rather than the bus so timekeeping's really important for me but also as a performer like I just that moment when it's over is really really important to me I know loads of comics who love being on stage absolutely love it and could stay up there for hours for me it's how do I get from the start to end without messing it up if it's going brilliantly <laughs> and I'm ready to leave if I've done me job and it's about doing me job like if I've done my 20 minutes and that's done I'm just like what it's a relief like you come off stage but then there's a secondary feeling when I get back and I had this last night like last night I thought me gig hadn't been one of my best performances it was good I had really nice crowd reactions was flying at the end and people were like oh it was lovely like lovely really good gig but I'm very hard on myself but I'd recorded it to pull some little snippets out and I watched it back and I was like do you know I'm all, I'm all right at this I, I know what I'm doing and it was just lovely because I I'd been really hard on myself. I remember coming home to my partner, Rebecca, and saying, I'm not that happy with that. I should have done better. There's a couple of tweaks I wanted to do. But actually watching it back, I go, do you know what? Like, there's still tweaks I want to do, and I'll always try and be better. But I really enjoyed myself. And it's that bit sometimes when you're lying there and you're thinking about it and you've still got the adrenaline coursing through your body and you just want your next gig. You just want to go and do another one. So I found that nerves returned quicker. I think before lockdown, I was at a point where I could go and do a gig and what was happening as I was in front of bigger promoters and starting to get big opportunities for nice paid work. And I was levelling out the nerves, but there was pressure. 
and what's been really nice coming out of lockdown is it's uh, the nerves have returned but it's just because i really care but i really care about comedy i really know i love like i love this art form it's amazing when it's good it's so good but i also properly just like care less in a way that like it's not about impressing promoters anymore like i can find my own path we've got things like felt out there's loads of gigs and it's amazing what that freedom of thinking i don't need to go and impress someone who might be able to give us 150 quids worth of work a year and just scramble at the table i can actually just go and have fun and just see what happens and make my own path and that's been really free and so i still get nervous before gigs but i think that's just the nature of coming out of lockdown and it being new and audiences are just so i think everyone's come out of lockdown together and for the first <laughs> month it was feral i love we are like so it was like being back in the wild it was just <laughs> wild and you just go i get it it's not on them it's not their fault you go we've all forgot decorum and manners let's get through <laughs> this together and we'll have as a group like as comedians in an audience like it's a it's a symbiotic thing and that's what i love about comedy and that's where like the nerves are there sometimes and you'll go on stage but once it levels once you can see someone looking you in the eyes from the audience and they're really smiling or laughing and it's a thing where like time can stand still and what i always find most interesting on stage is how your mind works so everything does feel like it slows down i can hear my thoughts trying to work out what my next joke is as i'm speaking and i that's the only time that i feel that feeling and it's just such a rush i think loads of people describe it as like the best drug and it is because you'd like anything where you're performing or it's people talk about it a lot if they've had to give a presentation or something like that everybody's had an experience of holding court everybody's a comedian in some right so everybody's told a story and you've if you say you've told that story 50 60 times to different groups of friends you know where the punchlines are you know what it's going to end on you know what that end line is and it is a rush even if it's just four people at a dinner table everybody knows what that rush feels like because every and i think it's an intrinsically british thing as well we've all held court everybody's went at some point i'm sure alex you've got that story about such and such and then you tell that and it is it's a buzz because people are looking at you and it's yours it's your moment and that's what comedy is for me so this probably sounds like a stupid question to ask now i mean we we, we can see each other on on this uh, platform <laughs> that we're using and, and i can you know as you're talking you know that there's a smile on your face is comedy somewhere that you find happiness Yes, now. So, what's really interesting, <laughs> it's a good question about, really good point about the smile on my face. For the first two years, and I am certainly not the only Northeast comic or one of my mates who does this, I was really deadpan, didn't smile on stage. And what that was was a massive safety net. And I've said the exact same sentence I've had at least four mates say when someone gave us advice to go try not being deadpan. I was like, oh, but it's me style. And what you mean is, no, no, I'm too scared. I'm too scared to be vulnerable and smile because what if people think I'm trying at this? If people think I'm trying and it goes bad, that's more embarrassing than long, like you don't care. So that took a long time to get over. But now we're absolutely, I love the industry. I love the way it is. I love the opportunities that it creates. It makes me so happy being on stage being around comedy audiences even if a gig goes bad now i think i'm experiencing enough what's nice is if it's five minutes in and you're opening a gig and it's been a quite cold audience and you're having to work for your money you're there to do your job so you're doing 20 minutes and you know this 20 minutes is going to be a struggle i'm confident enough now that any 20 minutes i'll go i'll get them it might be the end of my set but i'll have got them there everyone else will have an amazing gig i've done my job but i'll always get them and it's that confidence to go like it's always going to be some sort of enjoyment sometimes it's fact that it's never an audience's fault if a gig goes bad sometimes it's maybe the room's a bit cold or you've just not 
done your job properly, but you can always have, and the amount of now, what's lovely is just the amount of amazing gigs I've had coming out of lockdown where I've come off stage just been, well, this is just the best job <laughs> to have in the world. This is just brilliant. And being able to go off the cuff and dip into crowd work and what's great with comedy is there's no that art form like that where every show can be unique. Um, when I was putting my last solo show together, my friend Lee directed it. One of the big things, because he's quite a similar comic, he does a lot of MC and like I do, and it was almost like slapping me hand with a ruler, like a teacher to go, you have to stop dipping into crowd work. This is a show. People will listen to you tell a story. But what's great with comedy is you've got that freedom. All someone can give you is the best advice they can give. Um, but it's absolutely something that definitely makes me happy now. There's gigs where I come back and I get to spend time with my mates. Like what's great with comedy is loads of my best friends are comics or work at comedy clubs in the northeast, and I get to hang out with them at work. It's absolutely brilliant. I've watched a few of uh, Greg Davies' shows, and I I love the way as he's sort of getting to the funny bit, he starts laughing himself at, yeah. at what he because he knows what he's about to say, and I just love it. And that. Just makes you laugh even more. I think. So it's interesting that, that you've had that kind of change in, in the way that you sort of deliver deliver your comedy from being deadpan to just, yeah, embracing embracing the funny. But it makes me a better comic. So Greg Davis is a really good example. I think you can tell he's done loads of comparing and he's an older bloke who's just comfortable in a room. So you could tell he could just do crowd work and chat to people and it would be funny. And that's what I really enjoy. And again, it's that sort of smiling. But there's little things like laughing at certain points What's heartbreaking is if, say, you watch Greg Davis do the same routine three times and you watch the off-the-cuff laugh happen three times, you're like, oh, God, he didn't mean it. And it's it's things like that, that you have certain little tricks and tropes that work. But what you try and do as a comic is keep everything organic and natural and funny and react in a moment. And I think you daft not do react like... I get it when you're new, just don't, because it's nerve-wracking and just plough through it but once you're more experienced and again everything just slows down if something happens in a room go with it like see what happens it can take you anywhere and i can it not i think i've got worse at it over time in terms of i'm better at reacting to it but i will always react um one of the things i'm looking into at the moment is i might have uh, i'm looking to get an adhd diagnosis i've been referred for one and i think it's that kind of keep me attention span going long enough on stage if something happens i am diverted to that but what i've learned with experience is how i can make that funny how i can go right someone's clinking the drinks together or taking a while to get back to the table everyone's spotting it or two people chatting and again it comes with experience where two people chatting they're not being malicious they might just be chatting about i'm having a lovely time but what you watch a lot of new acts do is really panic and think they've got to put them down to the level jimmy carwood and it's just two people chatting you can just nip that in the bud and go what were you two chatting about have a little chat about it and turn it into something funny yeah i know we kind of talked um briefly on our, our, our pre-recording chat yesterday around sort of comedy and happiness and how you kind of described it almost as, as a sort of busman's busman's holiday you know when, when I was sort of talking about you know f- for me getting through lockdown was comedy you know watching comedy on tv rather than watching too much of the news listening to listening to a lot of comedy podcasts where do you see comedy and, and happiness how do they work together because when you think of happiness you think of laughing smiling good times 
Where does comedy fit in with that, do you think? Well, it's the release of endorphins as an audience. There is no better feeling. Than, and it's the community aspect. This is where live comedy is so much better than watching it at home. And I'm so glad it's back. And it's an experience so many people don't have because comedy clubs can feel intimidating. So you're like, what if I sit at the front and get picked on? And the amount of times I've had to go to someone, honestly, it's fine. Like, it's it's safe, lovely time. But I totally get it because I didn't go to comedy clubs for years because what if I got picked on? I don't want to sit at the front and get picked on. What if they say something? so what's been really nice is it's that release of endorphins sitting in a community sitting in the dark with a group of strangers and just laughing at the same thing being together there's a togetherness there um it's the reason i think comedy has always been quite a communal thing for me watching with my sister or watching stand-up specials and talking about them with mates or quoting them one of the big things for me with comedy is like your favorite quotes from things and comedy was always that stand-up comedy particularly was always that for me as i've started doing it it's exactly that phrase busman's holiday i now if i watch a stand-up special all i'm working out is how they do the jokes it would be like a magician <laughs> watching a magic trick you're trying to work out right oh they've done this because this or we watched one the other day and i could predict everything that was going to come back in a callback and rebecca my partner was trying to just enjoy this comedy special because she doesn't watch a lot of comedy and i was just oh he's going to say this later though i can see why he's done and she just she doesn't need that but that's yeah that's me at work I, I want to work out how they've done it so when i'm watching it i'm watching it to watch someone who's good at the craft that I enjoy doing and it's my craft and it's their craft and it's that shared sort of craft but that's still that's just stand-up I love writing and I love writing like sort of I want to write sitcoms I want to write for TV so when I watch someone write a sitcom I, there's a similar thing where I'm watching what they've done but I will get engrossed in TV comedy and film comedy and that's something where I can still have that release like I love funny stuff and sometimes it's not always the stuff you expect I think that's where just daft comedy like me and my partner watch the in between us two together and it's not a good film but there's bits in that that I hurt laughing <laughs> and it's lovely because it'll be three weeks later Rebecca will be doing the dishes and I'll just whisper a quote from the show and I yeah and she'll howl and I'll howl and it's that sort of moment like it's a shared moment sometimes it can be the stupidest daftest thing but that's what comedy is. It's, you can't help what you find funny and you can't force what you find funny. Just whatever you find funny is, that's what you find funny. So on that note then, where do you get your inspiration from? What 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 do you do, do you use anything in particular to inspire you for your for your shows? Not really. It just comes from life. I think a lot of comics would say that of like I probably lean more towards a sort of storytelling comic style. That's always what I enjoyed watching as well, which is quite fortunate. Uh, my new show is about being a step parent. I think that's quite a unique experience, but I didn't really think of it as that. I was just doing weekend club gigs where you just do sort of your best material it's people who want a night out so you've got to go and deliver and i put in a couple i had a couple of new bits that i was working on that were just some throwaway lines about being a step parent what my stepdaughter's like and it got big laughs and i had a couple of people come up after that go that's really unique that that's there's not many people talk about being a step parent on stage i was like, i didn't think it was unique but i'll write this down this is interesting and a couple of other people said their their experience wasn't represented in being a step parent they were like the step parents that are on tv or film are always the wicked disney style mm. and that was something where i started to write more and more about and so you try and draw a knife but it's constantly writing so it's going through writing exercises comedy can be a laborious tedious thing the fun and the joy and the like we said about watching it for me is sucked now because i i have to go through writing exercise if i've got an idea for a joke i've got to mind map it i've got to make lists i've got endless things that might just end up be one one liner and i've worked for hours and hours to make that good and then there's other bits that are five minute stories that i've said for the first time and it's pretty much ended up just staying in verbatim there's no real control sometimes and that's what makes it exciting just you'll say something and you'll try it four or five times on 
on stage, I'll get a laugh a couple, then the next three, and I've always got the rule, if it doesn't get a laugh three times in a row, it's gone. And you will think it's the best piece of comedy. It's like art. You're like, this is my Mona Lisa. And then you say it on stage and just people are like, no, it's not good, that. And you've just got to take it out. Whereas there's other things where you're like, I hate this. This is beneath me. And you say it, but I tell you what, people laugh and you're like, well, it's not beneath us now. That's staying in. And do you find different audiences can sometimes react to different parts of your your, your show in, in different ways? You know, do, do some people find some bits funny and then others not? You know, does, does that ever happen? Yeah, so you can really pay attention to what an audience is. Most audiences will be sort of a fair mix. But yesterday at Red Raw, that's going to be predominantly students. It's a Wednesday night, it's a fiver. That's the night they're going to go. Because the student's not going to pay 20 quid on a Saturday night, really. Because you wouldn't blame them. Go out and just get drunk really cheaply because that's what being a student's about. Especially now in the backdrop of the economy. I don't blame them at all. Um, So it's always been predominantly students. Like That's what Red Raw is. It's a student night. So I can do stuff that's a bit younger. I can talk about terms that or younger whereas if I go and do a Friday and Saturday night crowd or sometimes there'll be more couples in I've done a Valentine's gig which was all women apart from me there's jokes that I know that's going to be predominantly women it was a lovely change and I tell you what not once after did anybody come up and go I don't normally find blokes funny right but you oh I was really hoping but what what was nice is that's a different gig I know I was waiting I stood upstairs and everything you're funny for a bloke it would have been lovely but that was mainly couples and mainly it was originally pitched as an anti-Valentine's night so we thought it would have been loads of just single people and it wasn't we had loads of couples just like absolutely sabotaged that and ruined four single people's lives who thought this is going to be nice I'm among friends but then so you, I would pitch that slightly differently and you don't change your material but it's how you pitch it you might go oh I've got a few jokes about being a couples or I might direct this to someone that's in the audience because they can relate um, there's a couple of jokes that I've got on stage or stuff where I talk about being a step parent if I know there's a step parent in the audience I'll direct it directly to them rather than just the overall just delivering it to the crowd so you're constantly aware of uh, gigs if you go and gig in like Scotland's got some amazing audiences when you gig around Scotland there's other places where you go and gig in a small town you might know they all know each other you have to deliver that a little bit differently because they all know each other you're a bit of an outsider coming in how do you relate to them and it's often just a really fun easy way to go well what would you do if you weren't on stage how would you relate to these people where do you find your happy moments have there been any kind of standout moments where you thought ah you know whether it was a particularly good gig or a particularly just you know a punchline really worked really well or you know a particular experience have there been any sort of standout moments for you doing a solo show at the stand having people there just for you and getting like loads in and it being the biggest thing was looking out going I don't know most of these people because you think it's just going to be your mates (laughs) and just seeing like strangers have paid money for me like my name was on the door my name was on the post and people I don't know paid money for me that's mesmerizing and that's amazing that people sit and listen to you for an hour talk about like all sorts of subjects and talked about like mental health and my relationship with my parents and constantly try to make this really funny strong show but my mate Lee who directed it kept giving us advice saying like people will listen to you you can go longer than you can and say club set when you're in a comedy club because people are there to hear your story that's incredible but then there's other gigs sometimes where I've done them and there's been like a smaller crowd and it might be just trying like stuff it in you at night and there might only be like six people in the audience but there's a moment where something's happened and you just go this is joyous like there was once and I cannot remember why it happened but somebody was dressed as Mr Blobby and they had a giant inflatable Mr Blobby suit 
and they were sat in the audience of a new act night in Newcastle and I recreated the scenes from The Snowman with them. I got two students to pick me up and carry me around. I go, I can't believe this is a thing that happened. I'll remember that till the day I die. And I made no money for that gig. It was a new act night. The audience was maybe five, six people there. But I tell you what, it was joyous. It's just this weird comedy you can throw <laughs> these weird moments. And there's loads of gigs like that where they don't always need to be. The big, big rooms where you've got hundreds and hundreds in. They're amazing and you can feel the laughter when that you feel that laughter hit you almost like it's pushing you backwards that is incredible and there's times i've done at the stand uh, there was one this year i've done an opening weekend in glasgow at the stand and the friday was so rowdy and it was one of them where it feels like almost like right this is rowdy i'm gonna have to work for this but i tell you what it was joyous just being in that energy in that room and i had to do more crowd work than i normally would because there was a couple of people needed sort of interacted with and to keep control of the room and i was on first and opening's hard it's just a harder spot on probably the hardest spot on the bill but it was lush and then the saturday night we do the friday and then the saturday and on the saturday night it was a much you could feel the the calmness friday you could feel how lively it was saturday it was just much calmer and i could deliver loads of material and i was on with a comedian called pat cahill and it was the first time i've worked with him and he's a really brilliantly alternative act and it was just such a joy in a sketch group called Weegie Hink of That who are very Scottish and have jokes that are so aimed at that audience and Susan Morrison's a combo okay with performance brilliant and I was just on with a lovely there was a joyous atmosphere in that room the sound tech was lovely the staff at that venue were amazing it was the, the Stan Glasgow and that was just a weekend where I went I love I love this job like love it it's so good and I think I'd done like open Newcastle stand the week before and I'd had a run of like seven gigs in a row and just there was a moment and again just staying out having because I was staying in a hotel in Glasgow sitting with Pat Cahill talking about comedy and going realizing like I what we had a lovely chat about is how I would love to be more alternative like him that's what I'd love to be that comic and then he was saying how he would love to be in a sketch group like those sketch lads and be able to do it with his mates but you're not going to split a fee and then those sketch lads were saying how they would love to be a bit more relaxed on stage like how I appear and it was lovely having three people who were all really happy in their role but it's still going but just like a little bit of what you've got just a just a little bit <laughs> but being happy in each other's company it was a, just a really nice weekend where you go this yeah. is a great great job and it feels like there has to be a little bit of working off the cuff I guess and just as you say improvising and just going with the flow and and seeing what happens, as you were saying there, you, you had a really wild, you know, high energy night and then a really calm one and you had to work different people. So you're, you're off, obviously having to work, you know, sometimes just, as I say, off the cuff. Absolutely. If you can, I like going in and thinking a gig is going to be utterly unplayable and making it the best it can be. I'm not going to lie and say they're always going to turn into the best gigs ever, but there's sometimes you can turn a gig where you're like, I just want to run away. I've done this for 10 years, I shouldn't be doing this. But sometimes you can't ever judge a gig because you don't know. Gigs can look really rough, or like they'll be horrible, or just go, I just never think you can prejudge an audience. Once that's what a compare's job's for, once an MC starts talking to a crowd, you should be paying attention and listening to what they get out of their 10, 15, 20 minutes at the top and then go, right, it's this kind of vibe. You can often sense the vibe in a room anyway and then as soon as the show starts, you're in. How do I deliver my material to the people that are in the audience now? So you should always be thinking off the cuff or, again, something might happen in the room. It's where... 
that you should always as a comic watch as much as possible like i was closing yesterday so i could have just turned up for my spot and not watch the rest of the show but i watched because i like to be supportive of new acts anyway because i was always fortunate that people were with me um and watch the new acts and watch them do well but also i've seen it happen loads where i've seen three or four acts do the same or similar jokes one after the other because they weren't watching or paying attention and so actually being able to watch it's nice nice watching and enjoying comedy but you also get to pay attention to what's happening in the room and gauge it for how you can deliver something. You might hear somebody direct something at someone and you go, oh, I've got a bit of material I'll call back on that for. And audiences appreciate that because they're like, oh, you've been paying attention as well. That's really nice. So how's the comedy scene at the moment now then? As we're sort of coming out of lockdown, you sort of touched at the, at the top of the interview that you were at a Red Raw event last night and people are trying to work out how to act in public again at different events. And I was, you know, we watched a few sort of stand online gigs during lockdown. And as you say, it's, it's just, it's not the same. It's, it's, it's better than nothing for everybody, but it's not the same as, as, as proper in-person comedy. How's the comedy scene at the minute? Is it getting back to where it was pre-COVID? I think so. The big thing with comedy that took a while to level out coming out of lockdown is people shouldn't do cocaine and then go to comedy clubs. And it's happened so often. It's a dark room where you need to be quiet is not the place to go and do cocaine. Like, but people, it, honestly, it's so prevalent because people were just chomping at the bit for a night out or just getting yeah. absolutely leathered. So that's took a while. And I don't fully blame people because they're trying to just pack everything in to think, well, I might get locked down again. So I'm going to have four nights out in one. And don't, you wouldn't go to the theatre mashed off your face. Don't go to comedy mashed off your face. So that's took a little while to level out is seeing how people can control themselves and behave, behave like a non-primitive animal. And it's slowly getting there. But gigs are like, it's. I think there's a collective spirit that everyone's just glad to be out. What's often interesting is hearing the phrase a lot now that people are like oh you're a comedian must be dead hard because you, you can't really say anything these days and that instantly panics me when people say that because i'm like we're not going to get honest people but people still think that there's no hindrances like there's no you can't say anything just because you can do something doesn't mean you should and i think that's a thing a lot of audiences feel like you uh, the audiences will go with stuff if someone says something horrific obviously there's no entitlement that people will laugh at it but it's not like people think. I don't think like cancel culture is anywhere any other level. People act like it is. So there's often a tension in a room now because people overthink other people's reactions rather than just embracing their own. And I don't think people are as easily offended as some people make it out to be. But the same way I don't think it's that you can't say anything. I think comedy, it's still pretty similar. It's just what the media and social media will drive you to think things are but if you're in a comedy club it's a safe space where loads of people have paid money to watch the same person or people have a laugh that like the best places for me to go and have a night out like it's really really good night out it's yeah. solid like it's just a place to go and have fun and it's returning for me it's returned just as well and what's always going to be fascinating to see how comedy plays out is in the rise of online comedy and content creators and people who make stuff on youtube there's loads of comedians who will never do stand-up comedy and i think comedy has to move and adapt with that we could easily be really cynical and go well they're not proper comedians or other but it doesn't matter of course they are they make money they probably way more money than we make off it and so you just go it is what it is like you can easily get as with any industry or anything creative get bitter or jealous or look at like other people who are doing well and just make your own path like we've done that with felt now like we could easily have went like oh there's less gigs up here or or telly never comes up here or nothing gets made or none of us get signed unless we move to london 
But we just went, well, let's just put more gigs on. I don't like travelling. I hate the Megabus. Let's try and have more gigs here so I don't have to go further than Sheffield ever again. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't like the Megabus either. Yeah. <laughs> Who does? Unless, obviously, London agents are listening. If London agents are listening, <laughs> I will travel. Megabus straight yeah. away. I will walk. So... Tell me a little bit about what you're working on at the moment. Um, you've been working on a on a podcast with uh, TWAM, with uh, Tyne and Weir Archives and Museums. Um, have there been any particular... St- so first of all, tell me about the podcast and, and tell me about the stories that you've been finding out. So the podcast come about me and Sarah Eunice from TWAM, little Twammy TWAM. Uh, we were chatting around some projects that we were looking to work on. I've made a lot of podcasts, uh, so background on that. I think the first one I made was called The Greatest Film You've Never Seen, where we interviewed loads of comedians about the best film they've not seen and then got them to create their version of that film based on the limited knowledge I've had. I did 17 episodes about Grease 2 because I think Grease 2 is the most underrated film of all time. It's so bad, but it's brilliant. It's oh, 17 episodes I got out of that. And I've done a couple of other ones. Uh, one about Married at First Sight, which weirdly went very successful and while getting quoted in national newspapers as like a reference point for that so i'd had I, what i'd done with each of those was going i want to learn audio production i want to be able to turn out really high-end good podcasts because i respect people who do that i love podcasts i think it's such a again it's an equalizing form anyone can do it if you get a decent amount of kit it's again not as prohibitive as stuff like filmmaking where you do need really high-end kit you can learn what you can do and it's something i want i want to run more of but i've done like podcasts and workshops and stuff and showed people how to do it in basic ways and how to make like your room sound better and just little tips and tricks that you can do that make things sound better so it's been really exciting to do that so me and sarah were speaking about podcasts because she'd done one about heavy metal music for twam and I was telling her a story. So we are really keen, I felt now, to preserve the history and heritage of Northeast comedy. There's loads there, but outside of a couple of plaques, nobody knows. And I found out this story. So my friend David Silk, who I used to work with at Newcastle Castle, who is a historian and has helped me I with the podcast. David yes, yes. Everyone knows David. <laughs> like, just as he's such a social butterfly, knows everyone. Absolutely brilliant at what he does, David. So me and David were talking, it was for the castle, so I was helping them with sort of their audience development and helping them put a lot of social media stuff together. And I was looking for stuff for LGBTQ plus History Month. And a story that he found was about a person called Alonzo Johnson, who in the 1840s was sentenced to death for having sex with his gay lover in a Newcastle hotel. And their death sentence got commuted, and they ended up going to Australia to serve out their sentence there. And Alonzo Johnson, when their death sentence got commuted, they listed their job as comedian. And it's one of the first references that I find of a comedian. It goes back to the 1840s. And then reading about Alonzo Johnson, there was loads of stuff around how... He's one of the first examples you can find of sort of like real queer culture. Like mm. he was in a gay relationship, but uh, would constantly get in trouble for dressing in women's clothes. And his all you've really got about him is his rap sheet, and his rap sheet is it's loads of tiny little crimes, but a lot of them are based around sort of gender and homosexuality. So they were so interesting to read about. And I was talking to Sarah about this story, and Sarah said they had in the archives another comedian that was dead by 26 so no one knows anything about but they had all of his BBC contracts and that was a man called Ian Milne who was from heaven like I am and that sort of inspired actually there must be all of these stories how do we do something with these stories and the idea felt the easiest way was a podcast and they had their must say stories platform so we decided we would put something together for that. So other than these two um, characters that you've, you've come across 
what else? Any anyone else that you you're focusing on? So there's loads and loads. So Alonzo Johnson, someone we've held in the bank. I want to come back to because I think there's a real story there, and I'd like to do eventually a play. Like I really think there's a play about this person's life. But you've got the four that we're concentrating on for the podcast. But Ian Mill, uh, who I'll present an episode about. We've got Leonard Barris, who was a musical career. Uh, Comedy, a musical comedian. Uh, Gavin Webster's always been really passionate about him. He's researched and presented that podcast episode. Mark Sheridan, who is probably most famous for singing I Do Like the Baby Side the Seaside. Lee Kyle's found him a really fascinating man and presented an episode on him. And Wavis or Shave, or The Hard, as he was more commonly known. So it's where we get the name Felt Now from. So on the tube, the TV show on Channel 4 in the 1980s, he used to smash his hand with a hammer and then be like, Oh, I felt nout. And that's where we got the name from. And he is an interesting man. So he's messaged our Facebook page quite a lot. So we're like, we'll just do an episode about your Wavis. So there's one about him as well. So there's those four stories. And one of the big things that you can see there straight away is they're all men. Like, there's not loads and loads of stories that are diverse, as we sort of said at the top. So one of the big things we're trying to do is we have got some stories that are women and trying to research more and more. But to make sure that what we're doing is using the heritage. So the heritage that's there... How do we make sure in 100 years we're not facing the same problem? I mean, we won't be. We'll be long gone by then. But in 100 years, how do we make sure there's loads of diverse stories? And that comes back to the things we're doing with like the Time Theatre gig for Rape Crisis. How do we make sure there's loads of women? How are we running workshops to elevate new voices? So while those four are men, there are other stories that are really interesting. There's like um, Seton Delaville Hall, Sarah Hussey Delaville, and people like that who used to run these big parties that was so based around being funny and entertaining and um, there's a lot of other people coming through the years so we want to try and make this as big a project as possible that these forgotten stories of northeast comedy there's so many more the 90s comedy scene in newcastle as well as tales and tales that it could be documentaries it could be something else we explore but what we've wanted to do is showcase there's even just taking four stories there's four stories here that really showcase what the northeast has been about for a long long time and this is what I love about kind of storytelling work and, and heritage projects. It's a bit like sort of Forrest Gump's box of chocolates. You never know what you're going <laughs> to get. You never know what you're going to unearth or discover. And whenever I start a new project, you always kind of wonder, well, what are people going to bring to workshops? What, what photographs am I going to see that they've had stored in a suitcase under their bed for years and years and years or, you know, in the attic? And I think, yeah, you'll, I'm sure you'll uncover so many different people that you would, would have had no idea about once you sort of get deep into the archives you'll, you'll uncover all sorts i bet yeah you'll dive into it ian milne's a really good example if you google his name there's one half sort of like life story that's like 20 lines but they're all very succinct and then that's it there's nothing about them online it's hard to find anything but going through the archives and this is where i wanted to particularly hire david silk and work with a historian because david could put things together that i just didn't see he was able to go well this actually if we google this person and pull this together and there was a story and there's a moment where we're reading through his letters and it's a director general uh, comedy commissioner comedy director of bbc at the time richard kelly who is sending these letters to ian milne and he's just sort of hinting at an illness and what's heartbreaking is over the space of three letters spanning a few months you see someone 
die in just three sentences. And it's so... I would never have spotted that. But what we did is we spot someone going... Like in a letter just saying, I hope you have a nice time down south. I hope you feel better soon. The letter before that is just going, oh, I heard you being ill. Keep in touch. We'll get you on the next show. And then the third one's obviously just before. And it's like, oh, I really hope like you're taking the time to yourself. And that's what like history can give is it's these stories, but you've got to be able to put them together in the right order. And looking through his sketches and the way he edited, little things like just spotting the time that he get his, his train for shows and going down south the time he was getting his train he's clearly been at work all day so just through knowing the time someone got a train you're like you were working nine to five as a draftsman he was an engineer at railroads uh, railroads and knowing that he was at work full time and then going to do comedy you just go well you, you're a hustler you're a, like a proper workhorse and you've got an ethic that i really respect and i figured all of that out by just looking at the time he got a train because i've been through the same i knew exactly what he'd been doing and and back in those you know sort of nineteen forties you know a, a lot of footballers would have done the same thing they wouldn't have been professional footballers yeah. for Newcastle United they'd have had full time jobs and and played football almost on the side I suppose so uh, yeah completely different way of life and working and and yes as you say yeah grafting for sure it's so interesting when people graft because it's something again that I really enjoy that people see about me I pride myself on being a workhorse and a grafter if something needs done I'll do it like I'm happy to be that person and seeing that and again I think it's a very important thing to northeast like we have to work because we don't get a lot of help from elsewhere we have to be grafters we have to find and make our own opportunities and it comes back to the way comedy is now we could easily sit back and be like oh there's no telly gets made up here well why don't we try and find ways of bringing telly people up more why don't we try and find ways of getting stuff made and putting it out online why don't we find ways of making our own control and you can draw inspiration from people who've done the same again footballers like footballers is a really good example predominantly working class sport and they went they wanted to play football so they'd work to make sure they play football that's where like a, a proper work ethic comes through and it's fantastic to be able to see that happen so you talked there about being a grafter and that you're happy to be a grafter but where you know when you're not grafting when you're not working hard where do you find happiness so for me happiness is i love my partner my dog and my stepdaughter them three make me so happy like yesterday we're just running around the house with me phone and me uh, stepdaughter's inhaler pointed at the camera like a gun and we're recreating golden eye for half an hour and i had so much fun i just had a lovely time my dog's amazing and my partner's amazing like i like hanging out with them i always thought comedy would always be the most important thing in my life but honestly i'm just happy being in the house like i'm happy just hanging out with them i always thought football made us happy till my partner rebecca refuses to sit in a room with me because it's and this is a direct quote too much stressful energy i don't enjoy it so i thought football made us happy because it's what i think about to go to sleep i picture peter biazzi goals from the 1990s and that settles us <laughs> and i go to sleep but football was what made us happy it's stressful watching but also it's been slightly tarnished and taken away well not even slightly it's just been tarnished and taken away from me because of the newcastle takeover and the people that own the club so something that was so important and made me so happy is gone it's the same with the other thing that i really really love that makes us happy is wrestling i love professional wrestling but that company is pretty abhorrent so the biggest company in the world for wrestling aren't the most ethical and i find that really hard that's thankfully another company that's come through that makes me happy but that those two things i absolutely love and and just I'd really like being in the house I love just not having anything to do and be able to chill and I think that gives me a good balance with work that's why I enjoy work because I've got a contrast where 
and just be quite happy. Like, like my absolute happy favourite place has been in the bath. I love a bath. I love putting a podcast on and just sitting in a bath, just sitting, stewing in my own filth. That's where I'm happy. Bubbles, yeah. Oh, always bubbles. Bubbles, and we don't always have candles, so sometimes candles. But um, I figured if I angle my desk torch in the right way, it's the perfect amount of light for our bathroom. That keeps it really chill. Um, and it's definitely not dangerous or ever going to fall in. Yeah. <laughs> Is happiness something that you think much about? Is it something that you're aware of personally? Yes, absolutely. Like, really, really am. So I think when I started doing stand-up, so from the ages two of 27 to 31, I was talking about me this talking to my partner about this the other day, I don't think I was all that happy a lot. And it's something where I notice it now because I'm at a constant. I am su- someone who has suffered with anxiety and that's had a big impact on my life. But I've touched wood, not felt massively anxious for a long time to the level that I would at me worst. And it's all bearable and copable. And I'm somebody who's done cognitive behavioural therapy and learned loads through that that helped me on a day-to-day basis. But I would say what's really important is thinking about how happy I was. I used to be out most nights socializing i my mates constantly referred to us like a social butterfly and i'd be out all the time and i thought i was happy but looking back and actually one of my friends said this to us recently i think it was about a year and a half two years into my relationship with rebecca um and i was talking to my friend about it and she went you just seem so happy now and she went because when <laughs> there was a point just before that and she went you were miserable and i was like why didn't you t- why didn't anybody tell us this but i was just self-sabotaging i was going out all the time i was doing things that weren't making me happy and it's something that i constantly have in my mind now when it comes to work things there's certain work things that i've walked away from lately that were good money because I just went would it make us happy or does it make us happy and happiness is the root of it for me like and if, I'm aware that that's a fortunate position because I'm somebody who's come from nothing and me working really hard means I've got like enough that if things really go badly I can probably sustain myself for a month or two so I can take a risk but that's not a luxury afforded like most people around us like I still live in a working class area most of my friends are working class like I'm still a working class person I'm just a working class person who's got a little bit of comfort behind them but that doesn't really change a lot it just buys you a month but it allows me to at least think i don't have to do everything anymore and happiness is the root of all of that it's what makes me happy i'm not going to do things now because i don't have to and it just i know if i get on a route where i'm doing something that doesn't make us happy it affects everything else like happiness is a big thing for me because it really does affect my mental health so how do you maintain your positive mental health and well-being then? You, you talked there about, you know, um, feeling anxious and, and somebody saying that you, you felt miserable. How do you uh, maintain your positive mental health and well-being? I try and be really patient. There's loads of stuff. The big thing for me is organisation. So what I learned in cognitive behavioural therapy, the thing that affected me with anxiety is feeling overwhelmed. So I have a whiteboard. I break things down on a day-to-day basis. I've got loads of notes in my phone, loads of to-do lists. Everything gets written down because if I have control, control makes me happy. When things are in order, that makes me happy. So it's constantly being honest with yourself. I think when you're younger, you try and Certainly, I was somebody who wanted to appear confident and wanted to appear in control, where it's fine to just go, do you know what, sometimes I'm an absolute mess. Like, I'm a shambles of a human sometimes, and that's fine. So it's just being really comfortable with myself to know sometimes it's appallingly embarrassing the person I am, and I'm all right with that. And it's just spotting things coming, like putting as much in place so that when things go wrong, it's all right, I've got this. Or being able to communicate. Communication's my biggest one. Like, being able to go, if I've got a gig, that's really important, say, and it's just getting us a bit down, because I'm like, I, I feel really nervous 
nervous and I don't want to feel nervous and I'm worried. It's being able to go to my partner and just go, I just feel really rubbish. Like, I feel panic. I'm just going to, am I all right to just take a day? So it's being able to communicate that. And I think that the biggest thing for happiness for me is it's is, is that control. You know, like, there's no big unexpected things coming around the corner. Like, just to have that semblance of calm. I think calmness to me breeds my chance to be happy and I think that's why it comes like why social class is so important to me because I have only been able to have that feeling I think because I've pulled in enough money from the work I do that I'm not living day to day I'm not having to go a couple of days without food or stressing how I'm going to pay the bills or getting an unexpected bill and obviously everyone's just so close to that now because of the nature of the world and the way things are changing but that's one of the biggest things that I want like I champion now is my happiness is so intrinsically linked in my ability to pay me bills. And I was, I've was i always somebody who's worked and worked full-time, but it doesn't mean like I was always able to pay me bills on time. So my happiness, a lot of it's come from just security, which is one of the most heartbreaking things of the world the way it is now and the government we have and the world that we've got to live in is that that is just treaders in a side. There's people who work full-time and still using food banks. You know, well, that's where yeah. happiness comes from, which then sets me off massively because then I get angry. But it's trying to use that anger positively as well, so trying to realise, like, actually, I'm in a quite a decent position where I, like, people, I can say things and some people listen, or I can work with organisations, or I can go to organisations, or I can go, what can we do? And it's constantly when I get angry, realising feeling angry is far better than feeling sad for me. Because when I'm angry, I do something about it. And that's such a big thing for happiness for me because it's you care about the people around you. Like it's really important for me to feel happy. Like I've had, I think over the last week, a couple of really down days, but it's just because of the state of the government. And but that's where you find the little things that make you happy, and it's those little moments. And I think that's the the thing for me as I've got older. It's just realizing you pick up your little wins. It's what I apply to work. It's what I apply to everything I do. Like sometimes just tick off the easy wins, and the rest will fall into place. It's what I say when we're putting together business plans or working things out. Where are your easy wins and let's see what else we can do on top of that and that's happiness is really important around that that sometimes it can just be like i'll really buzz off uh like it's gonna sound horrific but i really buzz off attention and validation and realizing i can get that from my partner it took me a long time to realize because i was somebody who didn't have long-term a lot of long-term relationships but being around somebody who completely knows me inside out and buzzing off realizing i can get that validation not like not needing it from stage like just sometimes I might just pick her up a bunch of flowers and I'm doing it because it's something nice for her but also partially because she'll tell me I've done a good thing and I like that feeling it makes me feel happy and it's good like you just sometimes it's about being really honest to go those little wins matter and that's what we do for each other or like us as a family and I think that's a really important thing for me because it just levels you and it's not a money thing and it's something that you know you'll always provide to know even if things did go drastically wrong you'll still find those little wins where you can well i think that's the perfect note to end on Sai. before we finish totally how can people find out more about felt out about the podcast that you're doing with tiny museums where can people find out more so the discovery museums website will host uh, the tickets for our launch event on the 22nd of april the podcast will be housed there through their must see stories section so that also launches on the 22nd of april and goes out 
weekly. Feltnout, we've got a website, feltnout.co.uk. So that's F-E-L-T-N-O-W-T, Feltnout, the most jolly term you could find for a jolly company. Uh, so we run loads of gigs and workshops. Uh, we're on social media. There's a lot there. And again, we'll be sharing constantly about the podcast, putting clips out. Those are the two main places. Again, we encompass so much within Feltnout just by going there. There'll be people listening to this who go, I want to give comedy a go. We're really good at championing new acts, giving people advice, trying to uh, find people into workshops. And again, comedy is such a broad thing. What we've tried to do is not make it just stand-up comedy as well, but make it like people who want to do comedy writing or sketch writing or just are interested by it or run a venue. So if you go to feltnow.co.uk's contact page, you can find our email address. That's often your best starting point. Amazing. Thank you, Sai, so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about comedy, happiness. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Alex. It's been an absolute joy. <laughs> right answer. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Sai. What did people think? He talks very quickly, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. It was very high energy, I felt. Yeah. I thought, my goodness, good value for money and funny <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. It's just beautiful to listen to. Absolutely. I've learned so much about the comedy scene in, in the area that mm-hmm. I'd never really thought about before because I've never been to a, um, you know, an open mic or a session. So it was completely new to me. And there's, there was so much wisdom, I think, in among the comedy of it. Just some of his phrases. He explained about the physical experience of happiness, mm. about endorphins and, uh, and how it physically makes you feel better. I thought, never, ever thought of that before i've always thought of it as a mm-hmm. an emotional a thing. thing yeah um so that that was um that was incredible mm. i thought the faq example he gave that the customs house do was such a brilliant idea yeah. because yeah you, there's so many times you've been in a situation where you feel uncomfortable to ask what you think is a stupid question but you know actually if you're thinking it and somebody else is probably thinking it as well um, so just yeah, just don't be afraid to ask questions. But yeah, I love the idea of having that. This is this is how it works. This is what happens. This is what you can expect. I thought that was a great way of introducing people to theatre if they've not been before. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. And there was a, there was another phrase he had. Just a quick one. Feeling angry is mm, better than sad. Yeah. I thought there's so much wisdom in in that. And that reminded me of of what Sarah Bryson talked about in her interview, about how she uses that anger for for positive good and and making those changes within the sort of community organising that she does. So I was thinking of Sarah when he was talking about that as well. Yes. Yes. I hadn't made that link. Thanks, Kath. What about you, Chris? Well, I I agree with Kath. It was really interesting listening to him because he's obviously a person that is, he's very thoughtful, very reflective. When I was sort of scrubbing that down and sort of notes afterwards, well, well, yeah, of course he is. I mean, maybe maybe that's kind of the, um, the kind of the key skill of being a a good comedian is that you do think about things and you reflect on them and you sort of turn them over and you turn them into something else. And, um, uh, it was just kind of interesting. He, he was he wasn't wasn't going out of his way to be sort of funny, ha ha during the uh, during the interview, um, which I thought was was interesting. He was obviously, you yeah. know, able to kind of think, well, this is my act, but then this is this is me. Um, but there was one thing that he said which really really struck home for me, which was when he was talking about getting advice, because you know we we always like to get advice on things from people that sort of know know better than we do about something, but 
kind of turn that on its head and saying, well, you, you get advice from somebody. It, it's advice about how to be them. <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily advice about how to be a better version of you, um, mm. which, you know, is a bit scary, kind of feels like, you know, there's a lot and sort of relying on you sort of understanding what, what it is you're about. But um, yeah, always taking advice with a, a pinch of salt is that it's, you know, it might be good advice, but it's also fine to ignore other people's advice and, and go with what go with your gut because that's what he was he was talking about that about you know finding your your comedy voice and sometimes it's not what you think it is yeah um, you just got to let it emerge so yeah no I, I thought it was a lot to a lot to learn from from what Sai was saying cheers Chris and I'm looking forward to listening to some of the uh, the podcast episodes as well actually I'm a I'm a big fan of comedy podcasts I listen to quite a few of them they're they're the things that sort of get me through long runs and, yeah. and uh, during lockdown and things so uh, I'll be listening out for those definitely well, and, and see I, what I, I really want to are. I really want to hear him live see him live um, yeah. I, I, I did a bit of a YouTube search for him to see if there's any sort of clips of this really good one at the stand um, but as he says it's you know it's it doesn't compare to actually being in the room so. I've, I've been to the stand a few times and I remember one gig in particular we saw uh, Dylan Moran I think he was um, maybe testing out some Edinburgh material uh, and there was just something as you say magical about just being in a in a community together all sharing this moment together and just laughing together mm. it was just fabulous to be involved in something which will will never happen in exactly the same way again it's a sort of unique experience when you're all together in in that environment mm. um but there's so many great gigs i've been to at, at, at the stand it's it's a great venue and of course felt now to doing all sorts of things around the region as well so yeah go go check them out thank you both of you and thanks Sai, for that fabulous episode if you've been inspired by this podcast episode, then we'd love to hear from you. We love hearing your stories and opinions on what happiness means to you. You can get in touch via email, hello at thenorthernguidestohappiness.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at North Happiness and Instagram and Facebook at Northern Happiness. Next time, we talk to the brilliant Bridie Jackson, who is a musician based in Newcastle. Bridie's a composer, performer, creative practitioner and self-declared happy northerner. You'll hear me ask questions like this. So where do you find happiness in your work then? You know, is it is it in the process itself? So, you know, work, working on a project, you know, from, you know, at the beginning to, to the end or, you know, is it the achievement of the end product, whether it's a performance or, a, you know, an installation or... Is it in people's reactions? Is it a bit of everything? You know, where, where what's what's the moment for you where you, you kind of feel, yeah, this is good? And hear Bridie give answers like this. Oh, that's such a good question. Yes, I haven't really thought about that. I think, I think I definitely feel, maybe it's not exactly happiness, but it's something very important happens when I'm trying to figure out something that's really hard <laughs> like this, I think it's, it's just really good for your well-being isn't it being doing hard things that are outside of your comfort zone so I think at the beginning of a project when I'm trying to figure out how to make a thing work that's really good for my well-being and happiness so I think that's that's exciting also very frustrating when you're trying to mm. join the dots and all of that um you know but it's it is your brain feels happy and healthy I think during that period of that problem uphill solving. struggle yeah definitely yeah. definitely I think yeah. when other people get involved that's really wonderful and it feels 
just really exciting when you know when other people are involved in having a having a really great experience because of that and then I think other parts of my work fulfill in different ways like performing live I think you do you hear a lot of people at the moment talking about flow state don't you mm. which I think I yeah I sort of wondered what that was and sort of tried to apply it to my own life and I guess it I think isn't the official definition something like when challenge and competence meet it's like the sweet spot between challenge and ability and you know it's like they're fighting to stay balanced and I think I get that when I perform because you've got to keep the wheels spinning haven't you otherwise Mm -hmm. it all just (laughs) topples over and I think that's that's a really really exciting great feeling so we've reached the end of another episode we hope you're enjoying listening to the northern guide to happiness take care and see you all again soon for another episode (laughs) 